Got me? Got me there? All right, good morning. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Good. I got it started right there. There's their feedback. We'll get them. I know you guys are used to Phil, so they, he's so much quieter than me, so they usually have the setting much higher. Um, well, good morning. Take out your Bibles. You already have them. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Um, I'm not continuing. For those of you guys, wait a second. He's just going to keep going. Um, no, I wanted to do something today. So as you get there, Acts chapter 17, we're going to be starting in verse 23. Uh, this morning, it is truly a privilege to, to stand up here and preach from God's word. Um, I'm really excited about the chance to share what God has taught me through the previous uh, weeks of study. And it is really weird to actually sit with my wife and, and sing and not be up there looking at you. So uh, that was a real honor and a privilege. Thank you, uh, Colin and, and John and, and Lily and Shannon for your service this morning. Uh, what I'd like to do before we get into our actual text, which we're going to be in the book of Psalms today, is to connect with one of Pastor Phil's points from last week. So those of you that have not been here, if you missed last week, um, you can get back and, and, and listen to that sermon. It was a great one. Um, but we've been going through the book of Acts for a while. We are in Acts chapter 17. Uh, it has been uh, two and a half years that we've been through this, and I will tell you it has been a, a wonderful time. I've enjoyed every moment of it, as I'm sure many of you have but in our text from last week, we heard about the Apostle Paul who had come to the city of Athens. And in Athens, uh, we read a portion of his sermon to the Athenian philosophers of the day there at the Areopagus. And so in Acts 17, I want to read this text and I want to kind of pull a couple things that God spoke to me last week that will kind of connect us and give way of introduction today. Verse 23 through 25 reads as follows. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And as Phil talked about last week, in this passage, what we see is Paul proclaiming to this people who had thousands, I think, what was it, 70,000 plus um, idols in their city, proclaimed to them about this unknown God. They even had an idol to a God, and it said the unknown God. I mean, they didn't want to miss anybody, so they made sure they had that one. And what he did is, what Paul did in this sermon is he actually proclaimed to them the one true God. He called him the creator. He called him the Lord of heaven and earth. He said he can't be contained in temples. He said that he's not dependent upon us as human beings, but instead the God of the universe in whom we humans are dependent upon for life and breath and everything. And I have to confess, as I sat and listened to that uh, message, it dawned on me that our world is much in every way like the world of the Epicureans and the Stoics of ancient Greece that Paul spoke to in Acts 17. I look around today and I see a, a very progressive society. We have technological advancements that are constantly on the rise. We have scientific discovery occurring all the time. I see a world where the ability to make and grow food and, and drink is uh, more efficient than it's ever been. We're more productive than we've ever been. I see a world where medical progress has led to uh, early detections of diseases and these treatments that no one would have even imagined 100 years ago. I see a world where 
We live on an earth where communication is immediate. And I'm, I'm sure many of you in this room never would think that there would be a day where you could pick up a phone anywhere, <laughs> except for the middle of Yosemite Valley, as I learned the other day, and communicate pretty much immediately with someone on the earth. But with all of our advancements and our modern progress, you know what else I observe? I observe a world where new technology means more violent weapons and tools of war. I observe a world where we waste food in massive quantities even though millions of people go hungry and die of starvation. I see a world where despite all of our medical knowledge, disease still thrives. I see a world where medicines designed to treat pain become instead masters of addiction. And where narcissism, meaning the pursuit of self and self-interest, has all but eclipsed common courtesy and human benevolence. So for all our perceived progress, it's my estimation that we are actually more antiquated than our Athenian counterparts. They had 70,000 idols of wood, and I would dare say we have more. The gods of sport and work and money and fame and happiness and fairness and mostly the god of self still rule our lives and govern our worship I say all this because it's my belief that our culture suffers from the same error as the Athenians. If you remember, the Athenians were, Paul even said, that they were in every way very religious. We're very spiritual. There's lots of spiritual things in our world around us today. But as they did, we fail to recognize and worship the unknown God who has made himself known. As Paul explained to them, and as I'm going to try to explain today, guys, we do know that God. I'm a science teacher, and one person that I've had the experience of having to learn from or learn about as I teach science is a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. Some of you may be familiar with Richard Dawkins. He's a pretty famous atheist and a scientist who is kind of like the main defender of evolution today. And he was asked this question, what would you do, Richard, when you came to heaven, let's say you die, and you come to heaven and you have to stand before God? And God says, Richard, what have you done? I gave you all this stuff. What have you done? Why didn't you, why didn't you know me? And Richard's reply, he actually quoted another man. And his reply was, this is sad to me. God, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? God did not hide himself from us. Quite the contrary. He has revealed himself to us through creation and through the written word of scripture. Thus, what we know about God, what we know about him from what we see in the heavens and what we see in his word is what instructs us on how to worship and serve and obey him. That's what we need to know today. That's what we need to understand. I find it ironic as well. Some of you may have thought that the family times are, uh, are, are scheduled, uh, you know, like, oh, I saw the family time and said, oh, I'm going to preach on scripture. Um, I had this sermon uh, prepared many, 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 many months in advance, and uh, it's just amazing how God even uses that to open up with God's word. Now, some of you in the room might be thinking, uh, well, do we really need a sermon about God's revelation? I mean, I know that, right? I got that. I believe it. Can't this guy preach on something practical? I mean, can he bring a sermon for today, something relevant for my everyday living? Um, if you're in this room and that's you, you don't have to raise a hand, I have two replies for you. Firstly, uh, I would say, yeah, it's true that many Americans claim to have biblical knowledge and a real acquaintance to scripture. I, in fact, uh, in a 2013 survey conducted by the Barna Group, 88% um, of those who responded 
2,000 homes in America, said, yes, we have a Bible. And of those 88%, they said an average of 4.4 Bibles in each home. So, man, we've got the Bible. I mean, you guys can take out your phone. How many of you got a Bible app, right? We've got Bible apps. We've got uh, online Bibles. We've got Bibles of every type, okay? We have the Bible. But listen to this sad account. Of that group, only 34% said that they read the Bible more than once a month. That means, do my math in my head, 66% of those who have a Bible never crack it more than once a month. And listen to this true-false response, this statement, and this is not meant to be humorous, but you may laugh, that's okay. They were asked this question, it was a true-false statement, Sodom and Gomorrah were married. Nearly 30% of Protestant Christians, self-professed, wrote true. The sad truth of the matter is that many in our world with access to the scriptures frankly don't read them or know them. What can be clearly seen by the world is that this access to the scripture doesn't necessarily mean that there is literacy in the scripture. You guys know there's a great difference between owning a Bible and a Bible owning you. Secondly, I'd say there's no more practical nor greater need in our churches today than for us to return to the word. There's not a more important sermon than to talk about the scripture. This holy book is more needed and valuable than the preponderance of self-help and the psychological driven dribble that spews out of our pulpits today. We don't need more self-help. We don't need five ways for this or seven ways to do that. What we need is to hear God's word. And for that reason, I'm going to spend the balance of my time here this morning open up God's word. So please turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. I was going to preach on Psalm 119, but we would have been here until next Memorial Day. Psalm 19, we're going to read this and then I'm going to pray. And we're going to read verses, we're going to read the whole psalm. But in my message today, I'm going to cover primarily verses 1 through 11. If you're there, say I'm there, Phil. I'm there. All right. He's ready. Psalm 19, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words who vo whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the chance to open your word. It is a precious thing that we have, the ability to hold in our hands the Holy Scripture. As we've even heard today, Lord, the Scripture which is authoritative and sufficient and inerrant. Lord, I just pray, Spirit, as you're in this, our midst now today, God, may you open eyes and hearts to your word. May you convict us, Lord, those areas in which we, we don't trust your word, maybe in those ways in which we don't live our lives to honor and be obedient to the word. Change us today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So as you can see in the text, um, we can actually divide the psalm into three different parts. Um, today I'm going to talk about addressing really the first two. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to start by talking about the general revelation uh, that we see of God. In verses 7 through um, 11, we are going to speak about the, the special revelation or the word of God. Um, and really, understand this general revela revelation, when I say that word, what I mean by that, this is what we can know about God from what has been made. This is also known as revelation through nature. Special revelation is that which we know because God has specifically given to us in written form. So general revelation, verses 1 through 6. And what I want to do, I found there's really three perspectives of general revelation given by David in verses 1 through 4. And then he gives us an illustration to kind of speak about it. And so I'm going to talk about these three perspectives. First of all, number one, general revelation of God is clear. The general revelation of God is clear. Look at verse number one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This makes me think of another passage. If you uh, go there with me in your mind, Romans chapter one, verses 19 through 20, uh, Paul, uh, when addressing the church in Rome, really speaks of this general revelation in a way that's about as poignant and uh, appropriate as any. He actually says directly in these words, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Excuse. Paul here in Romans Chapter 1 and David in Psalm 19 are really speaking about the same thing. They're referencing creation as a clear proclamation of God. David speaks of the stars and the heavens, the sun, the brilliance that we see in the world around us. And we can see this in the skies. We can see the majesty of God. Um, all you have to do is go outside on a dark night and look up in the heavens. Uh, David would have been able to see between about 1,000 and 3,000 distinguishable stars with the naked eye. It's about how many you can see today. It hasn't changed. We have the same eyes and the same sky. But today we know, scientists have told us, okay, how they know this number specifically, it's an estimate, that there is about 10 billion trillion stars. If I could write that on the screen, which I won't, that would be a one with 22 zeros after it. So try to wrap your mind around that number. You can count to it if you'd like to try. I'll see you guys in a few <laughs> billion years. <laughs> uh, in fact, in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, we have 200 billion stars. 
just in our galaxy, and we are one of billions of galaxies with billions of stars with, yes, I could go on, let your minds gravitate to how big that is. And we also know a little bit more. David looked up and saw twinkling stars. Oh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Now we know they're not twinkle, twinkle. They're giant, hot balls of gas, hydrogen, helium, and other elements that are actually burning in every second, giving off massive amounts of nuclear energy and heat. What kind of God does it take to make that kind of host? I mean, the power and the energy released by the heavens and the force and the gravity that it takes to even hold it together is so incredible. It's so vast. And yet our God is even more vast. Listen to Psalm 33, 6. It tells us this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of its hosts. I mean, it's really speaking of the fact that he just kind of like breathed them out. There we go. That's an incredible power. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26 rightly tells us, to whom then will you compare me? It's God speaking. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number and calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The 10 billion trillion stars in the heavens, he knows them each by name. Not a single one has gone missing. He made the universe. Its massive expanse was done by the speaking of his voice. So all around us, the heavens proclaim God. Now, I know this one personally. I have the pleasure of teaching physics and astronomy. And I am amazed at the precision and the harmony that we find in the universe around us. It's incredible to think, as some do, that that arose from nothing. My seven-year-old gets that concept. What comes from nothing? Nothing. From nothing, nothing is made. There has to be a hand that created. And we know who that is, the one true God of Scripture. So first of all, our true creator through the heavens, what do we see? A clear testimony and revelation of our God. Number two, verse two, it is constant. General revelation is constant. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God's revelation is continuous. Uh, if you go outside and look up to the heavens, it doesn't, it's not like you're going to, you know, oh, I got up there, it was 12.01 a.m. and I looked up and there was that one second when the heavens turned off. Right? You're not going to find gaps of time. It's continuous. It's not as though God just revealed uh, to us a part of himself for a time and then he, okay, well, I'm not going to reveal anything to them from this point. General revelation continues. It's constantly around us. That's why we're without excuse. There's not a human being on earth that has an excuse. Think about the sun. He says day to day. What happens when we wake up? Hopefully, we wake up and what do we expect to happen between 6 and 7.30? The sun to rise. We sure hope it runs its course. That's our expectation. And we take it for granted. We get up each day and here it goes. Okay? Is that a surprise? At night. Night to night, what happens? The heavens declare the glory of God. We see the stars and the moon and their brilliance and their beauty. So it's constant. Number three, God's general revelation is comprehensive. Comprehensive, verses three and four. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, there's really two aspects of this statement that we can actually mean by comprehensive and what I mean here about general revelation. First of all, it can mean that all creation testifies to the creator. So comprehensive in that it's not just the heavens. Um, as I said, I do teach science, so I teach physics and chemistry and life science and astronomy and all these things. And, and what I'm amazed by when I teach my students is that I can clearly say, guys, there is a testimony to God in everything. From the largest star to the most insignificant insect, there's a testimony that speaks comprehensively of our God. I was at Yosemite on Friday uh, with Colby and, and about 100 of our closest friends. <laughs> and uh, we took them up to the top of Vernal Falls. And if you've ever been on top of Vernal Falls, it's great once you get on top. <laughs> it's hard getting up there. But we got up to the top and we had a time for devotion where we sat down and, and Colby had a little devotional with the kids and read some scripture. And I'm always, I've been there, this was I think my ninth or tenth trip, uh, taking kids to the top. And every time I go there, I'm still astounded at just the comprehensiveness of God's creation. Every time I drive in and, and see the valley for the first time that trip, I'm again amazed at the reality of, man, this is, this is amazing. It's incredible. Uh, some of you may have hiked to the top of Half Dome. Bless you. <laughs> uh, you made it back. Um, it's incredible. It's a 4,000 sheer drop to the valley floor. And people crawl over to the edge and peek over there. It's kind of like, what about this is, right? Close to it. It's incredible. And see, we can see it in not only the big things, but even Yosemite. Think about it. It's just a tiny little valley. You ever been to Grand Canyon? That's a, that's a bigger valley. Um, massive. I mean, everything, even the smallest to the largest, it's comprehensive, and it all proclaims our creator God. Secondly, comprehensive can mean this, that, uh, that creatures, all creatures, humans in particular, are exposed to the God of the heavens and thus are without excuse. There is not a culture or a linguistic boundary to the general revelation of God. I mean, all mankind has heard his speech. It's all poured forth. We all have that general revelation before our eyes and before our ears, no matter what language we speak. Uh, Romans 121 clearly tells us the sad story. The sad story is we all have heard it. And listen to what it says. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, this is the statement why all mankind is guilty before God. We have all been exposed to God's general revelation. It's clear, it's constant, it's comprehensive. And yet, in our sinful disobedience, we've turned away. What should have happened is we should be exposed to it and it should draw us to seek out that God. And what instead happens is like Adam and Eve in the garden, we try to cover our nakedness and hide. One thing I'd like to add before we move on to the second form of Revelation in verses 7 to 11, is that there's an illustration that David gives. Look at verses 4b through verse 6. He says, In them God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
here David talks about the sun, the, the prominent created object um, which is radiant and glowing before the eyes of every single human being. Um, and I know a lot about the sun. Our sun is made of hydrogen and helium. It's 93 million miles away from us. That's a long road trip. It continually pours out light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. That takes 8.32 8 minutes for that light to get to us. It's got this heat that's given from it constantly that we enjoy, without which we would die very, very quickly. That sun, that comprehensive testimony, as he says at the end of 6, there is nothing hidden from its heat. So we clearly see from this first section that general revelation has spoken all that we need to know that there is the existence of a powerful God. General revelation has given us every testimony we need to clearly know that God exists. But mankind runs from it. And if we stopped our exposition there, it would be a sad day. We would have enough information to all be guilty, enough information to be condemned before God, but not enough information to be saved. We would be like those that Paul spoke of in Romans 125, those who exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature instead of the blessed creator. But, however, praise the Lord. David continues. He now writes a special revelation, that which we know of God by his word, that which is revealed on the pages of Holy Scripture is special because it reveals to us a personal God. It doesn't leave us with the God of general revelation. It, it brings to us that personal God. Only by this special revelation can we know that which we need to know to be saved. Romans ten seventeen clearly says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We can only come to a saving knowledge of Christ as we are introduced to the word of God. For in the scriptures is found the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans 1.16 also tells us that the power of, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes that gospel. Without which we would be guilty. We'd be on our own. And we'd be destined for punishment. So praise the Lord that he revealed it to us. Now just an interesting aside... As we transition into verses 7 through 11, there's, there's a, it's kind of abrupt. David goes from speaking in very general and generic terms to speaking very clear and short and concise terms. He's going to use something called parallelism, which is, which is unique and is very poetic. And I want you to follow that this is not new. Um, turn with me real quickly to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Because I think what we find in this letter is Peter doing the same thing as David. Um, to give you a little background of 2 Peter, this is Peter's, his time is coming to an end. God's revealed to him that uh, death is, is knocking. And soon he is going to be, um, he's going to be martyred for Christ. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 21, Peter anticipates this into his life, and he says something, I think, very striking that we may have missed, some of us. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And when we have, and we have, listen to this, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice that really important aspect of this passage. Peter is actually relating the transfiguration account. Matthew chapter 17, Luke 9, James, John, and Peter with Jesus went onto the mountaintop and Jesus was transfigured. He was glorified before them. Peter actually saw Jesus in his glory, hanging out and talking with Moses and, and Elijah. I would call that a mountaintop experience. I think that would be something that would be really important. I think that would be something that Peter would talk an awful lot about. But what does Peter actually say here? Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some other translations take it to say the more sure word of revelation. Peter's saying that compared to the written word of God, that transfiguration moment was not as significant. We have a more sure word. We have a more sure word than the mountaintop experiences. We have a more sure word than, than those moments that we feel like we're really close to God. I'm, I'm kind of sick of all of the feelings in our culture, especially in churches. Well, I feel like God's telling me to do this, and I feel like God's said, I don't care what you feel. What's God telling you from his word? Well, he's telling me that it's okay to uh, shack up with my girlfriend. No, he's not. He never tells any man that. Get into his word. That's where we can see that more sure, more confident instruction from God. And so Peter, just as David will do in our passage, speaks of the importance of that special revelation over general revelation. Turn back with me to Psalm and we'll continue on. Now, one other little side note is that, interestingly, there's also a major transition that happens in this psalm. David changes the style, as I kind of alluded to, of the psalm. Um, first of all, the name for God changes. In verse 1, he uses the name El in Hebrew, which is the most generic, general term for God that you can use in the Hebrew language. Um, it, it basically kind of opens up or speaks to the reality that, that the God of those first six verses that he's referring in general revelation is general. It's not a close, intimate uh, relationship. What's going to happen in verse 7 is the word's going to change to Jehovah, or Jehovah as we know. And seven times he's going to use that term. Now that term to the Jews would be a lot more personal. That was the revealed name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when he was before God, the burning bush. And that name reveals a, person, a personal touch, an intimacy uh, that, is, that is much more close than we see in the first. The second thing, as I said, they're going to see parallelism. The poetry is going to change. There's going to be six parallel statements that are going to happen in these next few verses, and they're divided into three sections each. So each statement will include a term for the name of God's word. It will include an adjective to describe it, and it will include a statement of what the Bible actually does or accomplishes. So let's look at each of these six statements about God's word in Verses 7 through 11. Number one, verse 7a. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Uh, The word here that he uses for law is the Torah. Uh, This refers to all of the teaching and instruction from the word of God that shows us his will. Um, It's not limited to the civil and the moral and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, but it's the full doctrine of scripture. Therefore, the full scripture is perfect. We heard it read, Carol read for us 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Or actually, it was Colby, not Carol. (laughs) The word of God is perfect, meaning it's complete. It lacks nothing. Therefore, it is an all-sufficient revelation in every way. Because of its perfection, the scriptures are able to revive us. The souls of man. There's another translation that actually says converting the soul. And I think the important note is the scriptures are what we need when we face difficulties and trials. When Jesus faced the trials in the wilderness, when the devil came to him and confronted him with temptation, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. An interesting fact is Jesus was quoting scripture. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He used scripture to defend the temptations of the devil. It's so sufficient that even the second member of the Trinity used that. So it brings refreshment to us. Secondly, verse 7b, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony... The Lord is sure. Uh, Testimony comes from a word meaning uh, to bear witness. And as we think of testimony like in a court of law, this actually refers to the witness of our divine author. When we open up the scriptures, God is bearing witness to the truth and reality about himself. And since a perfect God inspired a perfect scripture, we have a testimony that is also sure. That word sure kind of denotes sure-footed. Uh, you think about, um, you know, being on sand. If you've ever ran through sand, it's not very sure-footed, right? But man, if you've ever been on that surface, like a, a nice solid rock, it's not wet, a nice solid rock, man, there's such sure-footedness. You don't, you don't feel any quaking. And that's what the testimony of God's word is like. And it brings wisdom to those that are simple. You know, I have nothing to bring you today that comes from this brain that has any value whatsoever. I am very foolish and very weak and insignificant. But when I preach God's word, there is something very significant and very powerful. And you better listen. I mean, Psalm 119, 129 through 130, God says this. He says, Paul's, uh, or I'm sorry, David speaking, testimonies of God are wonderful. Therefore, my soul, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We are made wise not by the pattern of the world. We're not made wise by, by following what the world's doing. We're made wise by submitting and trusting in God's word, by knowing the, the, the scriptures and following them alone. Number three, verse 8a. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I love this word precepts. It's found in in the Psalms alone, and it's always plural. It's very poetic. 
And it really speaks of an authoritative charge or order that is binding upon the recipient. So when we say precepts, he's saying that this is authoritative. This is not something that's a suggestion. It's binding. We have to obey and respond to those precepts. And they're right. That word right means straight. They're not crooked. When God asks us to do something in his word, he's faithful to give us the strength to carry it out. And he's faithful to take us on a path that's straight. And it helps us to rejoice the heart. Anybody ever had that experience where just obedience to God's word brings a joy to your heart? Even if it means temporary pain or suffering for yourself, even if it means that there's going to be some kind of consequence, someone may look at you differently or think, man, what are you doing? Why don't you do it this way? No, I'm going to do it the way God's word instructs me to. And man, what a joy that wells up when we do that. Number four, verse 8b. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We know the word commandment pretty well, especially some of us with military backgrounds. These are the commands ordained by the Lord. This includes all the general body of commands found in God's law. And these commands are pure, so they can be trusted to open our eyes to the truth. The commands of God give us an understanding of the world around us, which is vastly different from the world's view. And that's why at times when you trust in the scriptures, you'll be looked at as a little different. Why are you doing that? But they're pure. You can stand in that. They're pure. They enlighten your eyes. Psalm 119, 105 tells us, we know this word, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By the word, we can see rightly and we can follow God as we should. Number five, 9a. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Next, David uses this word fear, which is a little distinct from the others. Uh, This signifies those aspects of scripture that encourages reverence for God and reveals to us his holiness. God's word is clean. There's no impurity. There's no defilement or filthiness or imperfections. The holy scriptures are inerrant. They are without error. Therefore, they endure forever. If they had error, then we'd have to revise them. We'd have to make changes. Uh, one of my favorite things to, to uh, well, not my favorite, but something I enjoy studying is, is other world religions. It's amazing how many times the Book of Mormon has been revised. For a word given from God, it's incredible that they keep changing it. It's incredible how many times the Koran has been changed. Man, for a perfect scripture, why do they have to keep making adjustments? God's word is inerrant. We don't need to change it. It's relevant. It's true today. It's able for all that we need. And it's able for all times and all cultures. We don't have to make it fit our culture. Mark 13, 31 tells us something really important. That heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Isaiah 48 tells us that grass will wither and the flower will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lastly, number six, verses 9b through 11. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, and by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And I did skip for a second. I'll come back to it. Rules here is representative of a judicial decision that sets a precedent and creates a binding law. 
Unlike our human rules, the rules of the Lord are always true and always righteous. You don't have to think that the police officer, <laughs> you ever been pulled over and wondered if he had his numbers correct? <laughs> we don't have to deal with that. God's word is right. It's true. We don't have to worry about him getting it wrong. It's accurate. It's perfect in design. There's no need for a higher court to evaluate and determine the constitutionality of God's law. Psalms 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So by the knowledge of God's rules, each of us are warned of the consequences of our sin and of disobedience. And in keeping them, we do find great reward. I mean, what a blessing comes from the warnings that are received in God's word. I'm trying to teach my, my young kids how important it is for them to learn the warning signs. I've got a four-year-old that, that doesn't understand, at times, the warning signs. So I keep him away from the road because he thinks he can take that car on. And he can, but he won't win. God's word is full of warnings. And those warnings at time, I know as kids, we probably all felt this. We don't like our parents' rules and warnings. But they're there for a purpose. They're there ultimately to protect us from harm. They're there ultimately to protect us from sin. They're there ultimately to protect us from death. We learn this in James 1. That we're not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Jesus in John 13, 17 actually tells this to his disciples. If you know these things, and he's referencing all the things that he's taught at the Passover time, blessed are you if you do them. There is great reward for us to know the word and obey it. Now, a little quick aside. Notice in, verse, in the sixth statement, in verse, chapter, uh, verse number 10, that David stops for a minute and gushes about God's word. I love this. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I love this verse because I see in David, he's like going along, he's writing it out, he's writing a psalm, and he's getting all these things. He gets there and he's like, okay, I got to stop. I just got to stop and talk about how much I love it. And he says two things right there. He says clearly an expression of the value of the word, and he gives an expression of the sweetness of the word. Those are two things I don't think we understand very well. The word of God is more valuable than any amount of gold we could earn. It adds more to our net worth than the best investment opportunities, the greatest diversification. It's more, treasure, more to be treasured than a fully vested pension or the security of a paid-off mortgage. There's nothing like it. There's nothing we can have on this earth in monetary value that relates or equates or equals that of God's word. Jesus reminds us this in Matthew 6. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he also talks about the sweetness the word is sweet to the soul. Like honey on the tongue, so is the word of God sweet to the soul of the believer. Now, some of you might say, wait a second. I read the Bible sometimes, and it's very convicting. It doesn't taste so sweet going down. But you know what? It really is sweet. It may, it may have a little consequence or a bitterness when we see our sin, 
But man, isn't that corrective nature of the word that leads us to, to true communion with the Lord, isn't that a sweet thing? And I found the more that I'm in the word, the more time I spend in the scriptures, as Colby talked about, the more diligent I am with God's word, the sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter it becomes. It's kind of like vegetables. We don't really like them maybe as much as we should, but as you, as you, you kind of enjoy and learn, wow, they actually have value to us. They're really good for us, and they actually taste good. The word's like that. Some of the kids in the room are like, no way. <laughs> the word is sweet. And David loves and appreciates it. Now, in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, I hope that we see one of the clearest testimonies to the quality of the Word of God in all of Scripture. Steve Larson, or Steve, yes, Steve uh, Lawson so well put it, Scripture is the sole instrument through which God has chosen to convict, counsel, and comfort believers. It is the chief instrument through which God has revealed his character to the world. This book is not an antique it's living. We know that. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. So from its pages, what we get in scripture is the very voice of God revealed to mankind. I love a, a quote by Martin Luther who once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And this is so true. So true. The scripture has a way of discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart and exposing us the way that we really are. And I think sometimes that's why we close this book. I think that's why it remains on the table. I think that's why it collects dust instead of creased pages. We don't want to allow this sword to pierce us and expose us. But we must. It's a relevant book. It's always fresh and so powerful that it can re reveal the true depths of our depravity and lead us to a right understanding and knowledge of our God. Only by the word of truth can we be sanctified and live a life of obedience. So today we've heard a clear testimony of God's word about itself. And so many of us in this room can testify with David that God's word is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous altogether. We've heard and can testify that the living word does revive our soul, that it does make the simple wise, that it does rejoice the heart, that it does enlighten the eyes, that it does endure forever, and by them that we are warned, and keeping them we find great reward. The evidence has been presented to each of us, and we all have to come to a conclusion about the word. Do you believe in your heart and mind and confirm by your life that the Holy Scriptures are God-breathed, that they're God's word? So for each of us in the room who hear this and confirm God's word as our sufficient guide, I leave us a challenge. And this was originally posed by Charles Spurgeon in a sermon that was entitled, The Lover of God's Law Filled with Peace. He said the following statement, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion they have caged him for his preservation. They have shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. 
Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Guys, we have the perfect word of God in written form. We have the revelation that shares to us all that we need about God to know him and obey him. We've been introduced from it. The pages of scripture in John chapter 1, we learn about the perfect word, the logos, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, who died a death that we deserved, who was buried and was resurrected so that we could be reconciled to God and have life everlasting. We've been given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of that Spirit every day in our lives to help us and sanctify us by the truth. And Jesus said himself, your word is truth. You guys hear this? 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have all that we need in Christ. So why do we spend so much of our lives looking for answers from our society? Why do we so, spend so much of our time learning the world's way to do things? Do you understand that all we have and need is found in this holy book? Do you understand that we're not called to answer every objection to the scripture? Nor every assault against Christianity. We must stop caging the perfect word by placing it behind the bars of man's ideas and reason and wisdom. Don't apologize for scripture. It needs no apology. Instead, preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and let the line of Judah out and see who will dare stand against that God of the universe. Now, I, I got to say one thing in closing. I want to be careful not to give the impression this morning that what I mean to say is that we have a passive role, that we're not to engage our culture, that we're not to defend what we believe. But rather, what I want us to hear is that we must be a lot like David. I was struck by this. When David was confronted with Goliath, he didn't shrink back from the battle. But remember that story that we've all heard hundreds of times. How did he approach Goliath? With a sling and some stones. And something much more important. The word of God. When David went to that battle, David knew that he had confidence, not in his own ability. Who would have confidence in a sling and some stones against that giant man? His confidence was in the Lord. David knew his God well. He had great love for the word. And because of that, because of that, he could approach even Goliath with confidence. This is the confidence that we also can and should have as we study the word as we read the word, as we memorize the word, as we meditate on the word. Because as I was told once by a man in a sermon, and I loved this statement, it's not so much that we know the Bible as much as it's knowing the author of the Bible. It's the author that really matters. 
By reading God's word, we are drawing closer and closer into relationship with the creator of the universe. What else is worth that? What else can you do today? What else can you do in your week that has a more lasting impact than being with the author? Do you know him? I'm going to read something for you guys. This is from the Valley of the Vision, and this is a prayer by a Puritan man. I'm going to read this in closing, and then we'll transition to communion. My Father, in a world of created changeable things, Christ and his word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on him, the foundation, to abide in him, be borne up by him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, affected them. How sweet it is to be near him, the lamb, filled with holy affections. When I sin against thee, I cross thy will, thy love, thy life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation and disunion and distance from thee, and having a loose spirit towards thee. But thou hast given me a present, Jesus thy son, as mediator between thyself and my soul, as middleman who in a pit holds both him below and him above, for only he can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator as a realized object of faith and alone worthy by his love to bridge the gulf. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and by faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. If I receive the word, I receive my Lord wherein he is nigh. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hand, form my heart according to the word, according to the image of your Son. So shall Christ the word and his word be my strength, my comfort. So now we have the chance to transition to communion. And I think this is, uh, well it is, probably my favorite aspect of each service is the chance to actually reflect on what we've heard from God's word and to take the time and really consider what's happened, what we've learned. If we didn't have the Holy Scriptures, we wouldn't know about Jesus. We'd have a few little segments of words written down by some old historians. We wouldn't know the Son of God come in human flesh, born of a virgin, who lived that life for us. So I want to encourage you guys today, as we've learned, the Word of God is alive, it's active, it pierces us, Let it pierce you this morning. I hope it has. Repent of the sin. The word expresses who we are. 
We're weak vessels who struggle with sin. Repent of that. Take this time as we have communion to, one, search your heart. Two, remember the finished work of Jesus. Take this time to remember, because that word clearly articulates all that work. And it is finished. Thirdly, be refreshed. I hope the word thumps us on the head, but then I hope we understand that the word also brings us great refreshment. And by it, we should have joy. We should rise from this place not saddened. We should rise from this place recognizing God's grace. And lastly, commit yourself. And I would say practically, commit yourself this week and beyond to obeying God by opening up his word. Take real steps to be more in the word. Cut out some of those excuses. Just practically do it. And by that, I promise you will find God's faithfulness to us in the scripture. Let me pray and then we'll have time to communion. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, for your word. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness to us that is expressed so often, so consistently that you've revealed yourself to us through the scriptures, that you've revealed yourself to us through nature and creation, what we can see, what's been made. I echo the psalmist in Psalm 8, Lord. Who are we? What is man that, we're mi- that you're mindful of us? Why would you care for us? Oh, what great love and grace and mercy you display. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us all that we need for godliness, for right living. Give us strength to submit to you Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Why? How can we do that? Because you are our rock and you are our refuge. So we find, Lord, now we commit our lives to you and we want to find our rest in you. We want to find our rest completed in your mercy and your grace and your love for us. Thank you for this time to remember you even as we take communion and Enjoy this time, Lord. May it just be a sweet time as we reflect on what's been done on our behalf. And we just appreciate the communion, the union that we have with you, the author of the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen.